Well, good morning. Do count it a privilege to be with you, and it is always a privilege to speak the truth of God and His Word. I do bring greetings to you from Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Again, just a word of thanks to Brother Jeff, Brother Steve for inviting myself and Pastor Simon to be with you. You can open your Bibles back up to Romans 6, but I will say this, uh, we are working our way through what really is the marrow of the truth of Scripture when we come to a confession of faith. So we're not going to be focusing on one passage, you'll hear reference to many passages in Scripture, but we're coming to that sum and substance of the truth. So we'll be looking at several passages, but one that we will Review, but has already been well expounded for us, is Romans 6, so you can keep that open, although we won't be coming to it for a while. The title of this message is Sanctification, a Work of God's Free Grace, and you may want to have your uh, bulletin open as well uh, to the chapter of the Confession, because we'll be looking at paragraph 1. Before we go further again, let's pray once more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you as the Holy God. We confess that unless you send your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, to open the eyes of our hearts, all will be for naught. And so we plead once again, come, O Holy Spirit. Come in our midst, open our eyes, Engage our minds, persuade, enable us to embrace your truth, the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, for the glory of your name and the good of our eternal souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The Lord our God, who is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the one true and living God. And as our confession states in chapter 2, he is most holy. Any discussion of sanctification must begin with the holiness of God. As the prophet Isaiah, as you know, reports concerning his vision of that heavenly vision in the throne room of God. He said this in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. R.C. Sproul wrote in his well-known classic book, The Holiness of God, these words. Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy. Holy. But what does it mean that God is holy? How do we understand? For those of you who love words, maybe you know that the Hebrew word, kadosh, and the, the Greek words, they both 
come from that root word that means to cut, to, to separate. It's where we get the idea of holiness is to be set apart from all else. And certainly an aspect of God's holiness is he is set apart as a creator. Everything else is a whole other category, creature. There is nothing else. You're either the creator or your creature. And our God is the transcendent one who is separate and distinct from his creation. That is an aspect of God's holiness. But more is in view when we speak about the holiness of God. It is actually speaking about a moral element. That God's holiness includes his majestic purity, his ethical sublimity. You know how the Apostle John says it, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Not even a smidge. Or as Habakkuk, you remember how Habakkuk is having this prayer journal, we could say, this back and forth with God about the problem of sin, about the fact that his people are not holy. God, are you going to do something about it? And he asks in a sense, will you send revival? God says, I'm doing something about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And my people will be purified. But what is it that Habakkuk, in that argument with God, he says this, You, God, are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. That is how holy our God is. We sing this in our hymns, don't we? In the great hymn, Holy, 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 we sing, Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. Purity. The white, hot heat and light of God's holiness. God's holiness, then, is this moral separation from the unclean sinful world as well. God's holiness is rooted in his very nature and character as God. And these positive principles are true, as the theologian Gerhardus Voss says, that God loves himself as the highest moral good, and it's right for him to do so. And because he loves himself as the highest moral good, then he is the God who turns away from all evil. Truly, our triune God is holy, holy, holy. But we are not. In ourselves, we are not. We are those who have descended from Adam in the ordinary way. We are born sinners. We are bent. As we're born, we're bent on choosing the evil over the good. We're unlike the Lord Jesus. We could put it this way. We are unholy, harmful, and very defiled. Defiled in our wicked hearts. Defiled by our many iniquities. And for this reason, when God comes in his presence, when he shines the pure and radiant light of his holiness upon us, our response is to cower, fall on our faces, and cry out in fear, terror. It's a response that we see throughout the scriptures, isn't it? It's the response that Isaiah gave. What did he say as he saw the Lord high and lifted up, as he heard the cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Here is humanity's greatest problem. Here is our greatest dilemma. That though Adam and Eve were created as the crown of creation, made in the image of God, in knowledge, in righteousness, and yes, even in true holiness, made to know Him, made to love Him, made to serve Him, they plunged humanity into filthy depravity by their transgression. They became alienated from God as they were cast out of the garden in Eden. And they placed all humanity under the just wrath and curse of God. Woe is me. Woe are we. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of God's grace to sinners. Jesus is our champion who has come to rescue, redeem, and restore his people. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant who came as our savior and as our substitute, as we were reminded already. He came and he lived a perfect and holy life on our behalf. He came to die a sin-atoning death to cleanse us on the cross. And he arose again on the third day as a victorious conqueror over sin over death, and even over Satan. He has accomplished our redemption. And now he is our ascended Lord and King at the right hand of the Father. And he is applying this accomplished redemption to all of his elect people. And how does he do it? While he's in heaven, we're on earth. He does it through the Holy Spirit, working by the Word. He effectually calls us as Christ's spiritual children, convincing us of our sin, enlightening our minds, renewing our wills, giving us faith to embrace Jesus Christ as our only Lord and Savior. And so, we have this glorious gospel. In it, covenant curses, woes, are replaced with covenant blessings, joys, So instead of being under God's wrath and curse for the penalty of our sin, Christians are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, to our account, in our justification. That is a covenantal blessing given to us. Instead of being alienated from God, strangers who have no hope and without God in the world, Christians are brought near. We're made part of God's family through the covenant blessing of adoption. But what about the defilement of our depravity? What about the power of sin? What about the pollution of sin? Does Jesus save us from these as well? Yes. Gloriously we can say yes. He saves us from the power and pollution and sin because we have an omnicompetent Savior who gives us a full orb salvation. And so he saves us by giving us the covenant blessing of sanctification. So we finally come to the topic of our conference. (laughs) But here's the question that remains then. What exactly is sanctification? So let's read what... Our forefathers put together in the confession. We're focusing then on this first paragraph. And if you've studied the confession before, you'll know that in each chapter, what often happens is the very first, first paragraph sets out the doctrine in general. 
And then the subsequent paragraphs fill it out. So what we have is here a general description of the blessing of sanctification. Let's hear these words. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit, created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, in our time remaining in this message, I want us to consider three things about the blessing of sanctification. For those of you who are note-takers, I will say it a couple times. First, we're going to look at sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. We'll be spending most of our time there. Then secondly, God's initial work of sanctification in the believer, which is to destroy the dominion of sin. God's initial work of sanctification in the believer, which is to destroy sin's dominion. And then lastly, God's ongoing work of sanctification in the believer, which is to conform us to Christ's image. So let's begin then by considering how sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And I want to break that statement down into its three parts. And the first thing then to recognize is that sanctification is a work of God. It's a work of God. God alone is the author of our salvation, which means he alone is the author of our sanctification. Sanctification is the work of our triune God, and we can see that throughout Scripture. So to give you a few examples, Jesus himself in his high priestly prayer prays that God the Father would do what? Sanctify us by your truth. Sanctify the people, God's people, by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul prays the same prayer in 1 Thessalonians in that benediction, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, where he says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Who? The God of peace himself. Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who also is the one who will do it? God, the Father. We also see it's God the Son who sanctifies us. Paul teaches that it's Jesus who is the bridegroom in Ephesians 5 who does what? Sanctifies his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her. That she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus the Son. The author of Hebrews also tells us that part of the purpose of Jesus' cross work is to sanctify his people. He speaks about how Jesus went outside of the gate. He went outside of the gate and says that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Hebrews 13, 12. God the Father, God the Son. But most particularly in Scripture, it's God the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. 
Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul himself describes his ministry this way in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 16. He says he was given grace by God that I might minister Jesus Christ, be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that's fitting, isn't it? That, that the focal point is on the Spirit, the person of the Spirit. For he is the one who is called the Spirit of Holiness, who is the Spirit of Christ, who applies the redemption Christ accomplished for his people. Now this fact that God is the one who is doing the work of sanctification in us is implicit in that first paragraph of our confession. How do we see it? Well, it's in that verb that's in the passive voice where it says, are also further sanctified. Passive voice means uh, it's, we're being acted upon. We're not the ones doing the acting in that statement. We are further sanctified. And who is the one doing the sanctifying? Well, you go back to the beginning of the paragraph. It's the same one who united us to Christ, the same one who effectually calls us, the same one who regenerates us. And in a confession of faith, as a system of doctrine, you need to read the confession sideways. What's it pointing back to? And it goes all the way back then to chapter 10 of effectual calling. And that chapter begins by saying this, those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed time to effectually call. So it's God. Clearly, God is the one. This is also clear from the whole structure of the confession. Maybe some of you are familiar with the work of Dr. James Renahan and his understanding of the structure of the confession. Our whole confession of faith could be seen in four different parts. Chapters 1 to 6 give us the foundational principles, the scriptures, God, uh, you know, creation, fall of man. But kind of the heart of the confession is that second part, which begins in chapter 7, and that whole section goes all the way to chapter 20, and it's called of God's covenant. What covenant? The new covenant. What we also call the covenant of grace. And it begins by defining what this covenant is in chapter 7. And then telling us who's that covenant mediator in chapter 8. That's Jesus Christ. And then the covenantal setting about man and free will. And then it goes into this section of these covenant blessings. From chapter 10 to our chapter, chapter 14. Covenant blessings, which are God's acts in our salvation. Effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. The next four chapters or so are called um, covenant graces. Man's acts that we do by the power of the Spirit, by the grace that God gives. Faith, repentance, deals with good works, and so on and so forth. So the fact that it's in this section on covenantal blessings shows who is the one that's doing the acting? God. God. It's truth that God is the one who sanctifies. Now, this truth is more explicit in our, our catechisms. Maybe you know the question and answer from the Baptist catechism. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And on it goes. Or maybe you know the, the children's catechism which puts it this way, what is sanctification? It's God's making sinners holy in heart and conduct. God's making sinners holy. This is also clear when you look at the Puritans. Just a couple of quotes of Puritan definitions of sanctification. John Owen, who is the prince of the Puritans, we say, 
he wrote in his magnificent work on the Holy Spirit in volume 3 these words sanctification is an immediate work of the spirit of God on the souls of believers purifying and cleansing of their natures from the pollution and uncleanness of sin renewing in them the image of God and thereby enabling them from a spiritual and habitual principle of grace to yield obedience unto God according unto the tenor and terms of the new covenant by virtue of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Then he gives you a a briefer version, which is always helpful. What is sanctification? It's the universal renovation of our natures by the Holy Spirit into the image of God through Jesus Christ. It's a work of God. The Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Brockel says the same thing. Sanctification is the efficacious operation of God. We repeat, sanctification is an efficacious work of God. God alone is its cause. Now you may ask me, why are you belaboring this point? You're taking so much time to say it's a work of God. Why? And here's the answer. Because we're so prone to thinking that it's merely by our own effort. That it's our energies that cause us to grow in grace. We can become like Galatians, brothers and sisters, who begin with the Spirit. We try to go on in the flesh. Ian Hamilton said this, there seems to be an Arminian lurking in the heart of every one of us. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? Pride, the Puritan said, it's the first shirt we put on and the last one we take off in this life. And it's our pride that still wants to be able to say, there's something I contribute to my salvation. So we left the Arminian camp and, and it's no longer saying, I chose But now we say, I do. And we haven't left the Arminian camp after all. This is why I'm emphasizing this. This is why we must remember sanctification is a work of God. But Pastor John, you might be thinking, are we not active in our sanctification? I mean, we're just exhorted about that. Is there not work for us to do in our sanctification? After all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or doesn't Paul say in Philippians 2, 12, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And so the answer is, according to the word of God, Yes, of course, there is something for us to do. There is work, there is action, there is effort on our part, but even this is all of God and all of grace. For, as Paul goes on to say, it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. The only reason we can do and do do is because God does. So we must remember that sanctification is the work of God. If you for, forget everything else, if you just remember that, <laughs> remember that. But we also need to understand then, it's a work of God's free grace. It's a work of his free grace. As I've said, all of our salvation is all of God and all of grace so that he gets all the glory. Amen? We do not deserve any of these blessings. We don't deserve to be effectually called. We don't deserve to have Christ's righteousness given to us in justification. We don't deserve adoption, and we don't deserve sanctification. And nothing you can do can make you deserve it. But it's God's infinite mercy, his unbounded mercy, that gives them to us 
by his grace. You see, just as the faith by which we believe in Jesus Christ and are saved is a gift from God, so also is our willing and doing in our sanctification. It's all of grace. John Murray, in his great work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is a relation strictly one of cooperation. Sometimes we can fall into thinking like this. As if God does his part, we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both is produced, produces the required result. God works in us and we also work, yes, but the relation is that because God works, we work. And this working of God is directed to the end of enabling us to will and to do what is pleasing to him. So, beloved, we must always remember that in everything we are utterly dependent upon God and we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We must put to death pride. It is sin. John Murray goes on to say it this way, it is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Yes, we must not forget that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification. But we must not rely upon our own strength of resolution or purpose. It's when we are weak that we are strong. It is by grace that we are being saved as surely as by grace that we have been saved. It's all of grace. So sanctification is a work of God in us by his grace. One final thought then on this first point about it being a work of God by his grace, work of his free grace, is that when God does this work of sanctification, it's described for us as a work and not an act. Maybe you've noticed before through the Baptist Catechism and you're reading through what is justification? It is an act of God's free grace. What is adoption? It is an act of God's free grace. What is sanctification? It is a work of God's free grace. There's a distinction to be made. An act is something that occurs in a point in time and then it's complete. Think about it this way. When you are justified, you cannot become more justified. You're either declared righteous or you're not. When you are adopted, you are either the son of God in his family or you're, you're not. You can't be more adopted. It's an act that happens and it's done. But a work is something that has a beginning point and progresses unto its completion. And that's why sanctification is described as a work. Justification and adoption, well, another difference is they occur outside of you. But sanctification occurs inside of you, within you. Outside, it's an external legal act, changing your standing and status. Not righteous to righteous. Not a son or daughter, now a son or daughter. Justification and adoption. But within, there's this internal work of changing our corrupt nature to be holy. Well, let's note this. This is an important point I want to emphasize. Justification, adoption, and sanctification, yes, they must be carefully distinguished as we think about salvation and the work of God, but they are never separated. They always come together. True Christians always experience all of them. Every regenerated person is justified, adopted, and sanctified. It's a full-orbed salvation. Anything less truncates the reality of what our salvation is. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul says it this way, But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. 
So sanctification is a work of God. It has a beginning point in this life. And it progresses as we live our lives as believers. And it comes to completion in our glory and glorification. So let's then briefly consider the beginning work and then the continuing work. So that's our next two points, right? So God's initial work of sanctification in the believer is to destroy sin's dominion, which we already have heard this morning, gloriously. Now, this aspect of sanctification is sometimes called definitive sanctification because it happens at the beginning and it is a definitive act. Dominion is destroyed. This is implied in paragraph 1 when you, again, see that phrase, are also further sanctified. You can only be further sanctified if you've been initially sanctified. (laughs) So it talks in that way by implication of this initial sanctification. And this idea of being definitively sanctified at the beginning of our Christian lives reflects the biblical usage of the word sanctify and sanctification. It not only occurs in this progressive ongoing sense, but in a definitive past tense action. We already heard that in 1 Corinthians 6.11. You were washed. You were sanctified. Or 1 Corinthians 1.2. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. John Murray is the one who coined this term definitive sanctification. He said this in his study of the biblical terms. We are thus compelled to take account of the fact that the language of sanctification is used with reference to some decisive action. That occurs at the inception of the Christian life. Well, what is this decisive action? Go again to paragraph one of our confession, and the decisive action is described by these words the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. There it is. Sam Waldron, in his commentary on the confession, says this definitive sanctification is simply another way of referring to the basic and radical change that takes place in a sinner's moral and ethical condition when he is united to Christ in effectual calling and regeneration. Of course, the clearest place that this is found in Scripture is Romans 6. We didn't talk about what was going to be said, so... (laughs) I'm not going to go through all of it, but again, to say... It's clear from verses 1 and 2 that Paul is addressing the topic of sanctification, not justification. He's dealing with the, the, do we continue in sin? It's about our lives in that way, our walk, to walk in newness of life. He's expounded the wonders of justification, the freeness of it, and addressing that question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course his answer, as we heard, certainly not. And the the prime thesis of this whole section is the words, we died to sin. We died to sin. And as we heard, the rest of the passage fills it out. How did we die to sin? Just to remind us, we died to sin in our union to Christ. That's when we died to sin. Christ died to sin in a certain sense we did when he did on the cross. But when is it actually applied to you? As you're in this world, it's When you're united to Christ by your effectual calling, it's then that that accomplished redemption becomes yours. That sin's reign is destroyed in you in that way. So it's in our union with Christ. And that's why he uses the illustration of baptism. You were baptized into his death. Baptism, of course, is that sacrament which pictures for us biblical truths. It's the word made visible. 
And it pictures for us this union. We're united to him in his death. And when do we die to sin? As I said, it's when we're united to Christ. This is why it begins in our confession by saying those who are united to Christ effectively called and regenerated. And when it says are further sanctified, it's saying back then when that happened, there was this initial sanctification that happened. This definitive sanctification. As we heard, what does it mean to die to sin? What's it referring to? Well, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that you never sin as a Christian. We need to remember that. It doesn't mean that we never struggle with sin. No, as we're going to hear, there is an irreconcilable war that we have. We still sin, as Romans 7 will help us see. As 1 John 1, 8 says, if anyone says he does not sin, he's not telling the truth. The truth is not in him. But it does mean that we die to the reign of sin. To put it another way, we're no longer citizens in the kingdom of sin. We've heard the language of master-slave, the language of dominion and reign. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. And because we died to sin, we're no longer under sin's dominion. The same idea, you see, is spoken about death. Christ, in a certain sense, was in the realm of death. He was in the place where death reigned as he was in the tomb. But death died. He died to death by his resurrection. He's no longer in that realm under the reign of death. You see that there. It says it in verse 9. Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. The same idea comes about the law. You can see this in chapter 7 in the sense of dying to the law as a way of righteousness for us to earn or merit salvation. Notice uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And then he uses the analogy of marriage. As long as you're married to your spouse, you're in that covenantal relationship. In verse 4 of chapter 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. And skip down to verse 6, where he says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So you see what Paul's doing. The realm of sin, we die. The realm of death, we died. The realm of the law as a way to our righteousness. We've died. And we've entered a new kingdom, a new realm. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, whom he loves. And so we have a new master. It's that same idea, really, in Romans 5, that wonderful idea and understanding of we have two federal heads. We're born under Adam. We're in Adam. But there's a transfer from being in Adam under his headship to being in Christ. And so, in virtue of our union with Christ in his death, we died to the reign of sin. In virtue of our union with Christ in his resurrection, we now live to God, walking in the newness of life. So in summary, this point about definitive sanctification, listen to these words from Joseph Piper. He says, We died to sin means not that you never commit sin, but rather that sin, as the ruling principle, as your master and lord, the predisposing characteristic of your life, has been put to death. You are dead to sin in the sense that it no longer exercises dominion over you. And you are not bound to follow its lead. 
In God's wisdom, you must still wrestle with the remnant of sin, and you will commit sin. Nevertheless, you've been delivered from its enslaving power. You can say no to sin. You know, the old illustration of slavery and emancipation and the slave who hasn't heard about emancipation, but then finally it comes to him, he's emancipated, and he's living somewhere else. Well, now he's a sharecropper in a different kind of slavery, but anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, he, he, he then sees his old master, and his old master says, hey, go get me that bucket. His initial instinct is to do what? To jump and to do it. But he needs to remember, he's no longer a slave of that master. And that's our problem. So often we still think sin is our master. And we'll jump when it tells us. We need to reckon ourselves dead. That which is true of you, do and live out of that truth. Now let me give us a couple of illustrations about definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is where there's a change of dominion. And a helpful illustration is to think of war. And perhaps a biblical analogy is to think about Israel's conquest of the promised land. So in the book of Joshua, you have this conquest. Joshua leads, and you remember how they kind of start as they go across Jericho and Ai to the center of of the land. And they'll go north, and they'll also go south. And after this campaign, they can say that they have conquered the land. No longer are these Canaanite kings ruling. They have been put down. They can say they have a theocracy. God, in that sense, is ruling in that land. But there's still pockets. There's still resistance. And that's why the book of Judges begins. They're supposed to go up and fight and continue to get get rid of. And we see their problem. They don't. And it becomes a thorn in their side for the rest of their existence. But that's an illustration. There is this definitive sanctification But then there's this need for ongoing sanctification because of the remnants. Another way to think about it is this. So that's how definitive sanctification is a change of dominion. But we can also say this. Definitive sanctification is where there's a change in our moral and ethical disposition. It's a change in our disposition. And here I want you to think of the image not of war, but the image of a well. Okay? A well of water. And... You can say it this way, uh, our hearts are like that well, or to be more specific, our hearts are like that underground water source that supplies the well. This is kind of the image that we get from our Lord Jesus in Luke 6. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. You dip that bucket into the well and you pull out the water and it comes out your mouth, right? The well of your heart. And as those who are born sinners, we have pretty filthy source filling that well. Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And what I want you to have is the image in your, in your mind is that your heart is a sewer. And it is putting out the filth of sewage. This is the reality of the sinful condition. It's disgusting. It's rank. You could only really smell it. Problem is you've been in it so long you don't smell it anymore. But in regeneration what happens is we're given a new heart. 
The source for your well has changed. No longer is it a pipe to the sewer or sewage. It is now living, fresh spring water. It is the one who is the living water. The Spirit of God Himself lives within you and He's given you a renewed, regenerated heart. But here's the thing. If you have a well that's been filled with sewage and you change the source, that doesn't get rid of all the sewage, does it? Yes, you have a clean source now feeding into, but there are remnants of sewage. There is remaining sin. So definitive sanctification changes the source. But because of the remaining sin, that's why we also need progressive sanctification. And that's our final point, God's ongoing work of sanctification to conform us to Christ's image. As I said, this is an aspect of sanctification called progressive sanctification. In our confession, it's the statement that says we are further sanctified. We must be further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, namely Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in us. Unlike justification, sanctification is capable of growth, of increase, of development. Why? Because our sanctification is not yet complete. That's the reality. There is a need to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are, as Peter says, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this aspect of progressive sanctification, I'm not going to say much about it. Just to say this, there are two sides to it. There's the the negative and the positive. Negatively, we are to mortify the remaining sin. That's what it says in our confession there. The several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified. A couple of verses. Romans 8 verse 13 says this. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. We are to put to death these sins by the spirit. Not in our own strength. But we are to put them to death. Or you can think of what Paul writes in Colossians 3. He says this. Verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now put these off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old man with his deeds. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. We still have these sins, don't we? We still struggle with covetousness. We still struggle with that anger, with envy. And Pastor Simon is going to speak more about mortifying sins. That's why I'm going to stop there. That's negatively what happens there. But positively, we're also to vivify, is the old word, our spiritual graces. So confession says, and they more and more are quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness. Colossians 3 goes on, putting off those things, it then says to put on, verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. And forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, 
which is the bond of perfection. I'll speak more about this in our third message. But here's the point. So we need to continue to grow, to increase, putting to death, putting off, and putting on. And in this way, we actually become more like Christ. That's the ultimate goal, to be conformed to His image. That's what our salvation is ultimately about, to be like Him. And it's particularly as we behold our Savior in His Word and in all the means of grace that flow from His Word that the Spirit of God attends those means and makes them effective to change us on the inside. Do you think about the reality of the fact that when you're listening to preaching, the Spirit is at work actually changing you right then? There is something spiritual going on. It's not just sitting in a room and hearing a man talk. Is the Spirit of God at work in you to change you so that you look like your glorious Savior? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, beloved, as you think of this doctrine of sanctification, does it not cause you to want to praise our triune God? His glorious grace. What a wondrous salvation has been given to us, not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also its power and pollution. And one day, from its very presence. So let us thank God that he is sanctifying you, dear Christian. You need to remember, entrance into heaven, into the very presence of our holy, holy, holy God requires that you actually be holy. Revelation 21, 27, where we see there's no more sin, we also learn, but there, in the new Jerusalem, there shall be no means, by no means, enter it anything that defiles. Nothing unclean will enter. Nothing that causes abomination. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So praise the Lord that in salvation you're not only justified and adopted, but you have been definitively sanctified as a Christian, and you are being progressively sanctified, and one day you and I will be completely glorified. To there behold our Savior in His glory. So let this truth of sanctification actually encourage you to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how rich, how deep, how wide is your wisdom in our salvation. Truly no man could come up with this. It is all of you. And Lord, what, what mercy for you to reveal it to us and give us eyes to see and to behold and also to partake and possess Christ as our Savior. Lord, we ask that as we've just thought of this one aspect of our salvation, the glorious truth of our sanctification, that, that our hearts would be thrilled at your grace, broken at our remaining sin, and filled with hope, because you are the God who will do it. Amen.